0: All right, church, at this time, I'll dismiss uh, our toddlers, our preschoolers, everybody up to the age of five or six for tot time. We have it in the back corner of our building over here. They will get to receive an age-appropriate lesson. All right, church, well, hey, will you stand with me if you are able? We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, some of the most glorious words in all of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, in your kindness and in your steadfast love this morning, may you give us ears to hear, soft hearts. May your word bear fruit in our lives. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, I believe there are only two religions in the world, only two. You may look at me and think that seems a little odd considering we can probably count lots of different named religions in the world, so how can I stand up here in front of you and say that there's only two? Well, church, ultimately, I think one religion is the religion of trying to earn God's favor on my own. Whether I'm trying to please Him to avoid His wrath, or whether I am laboring to, uh, to, to, to get rid of all of my desires and attachments, that's what Buddhism would say, it doesn't necessarily believe in God, but it's up to you to get rid of any attachment to desire. Or maybe you're an atheist and you don't, don't, don't believe in God. But still, then it's up to you to make the life that you want to have. Everything still is up to you. All of those are ultimately the same philosophical system. It's up to you. So that's one religion. The other religion is the religion we just read about in this passage. It's the religion of grace it's Christianity. It's what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. We believe that what we have, both salvation, relationship with God, everything in our lives is by God's grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. Today's passage is all about that. This passage is one of the clearest explanations you will find explicitly in the Scriptures about what it is that we believe. Now, there's three types of people in this room. Maybe the first group is, you're unfamiliar with these words, you're wrestling with these questions of Jesus, you haven't been raised in the church and you're kind of like, I'm not sure about this Jesus guy. If that's you, I'm glad you're here. You are going to get a very clear picture as to what Jesus is all about. I'm excited for you this morning. There's a second group and you've been in the church, maybe a lot, maybe you were even raised in the church. But is your life And you're standing with the Lord ultimately up to you or is it up to God's grace? Maybe you've always just been trying on your own to make God happy and you've never really thought much about God's grace even though you've been around God's stuff. You've been around Christians, you've been in churches. Well, you actually are in the same boat as the first group. If you've never trusted in Jesus, received his grace through faith, we're going to look at that later, then you are in that first group. The second group and the first group are really the same. And I invite you to take an honest look at your heart and say, okay, you know, I really am, perhaps, in that first group. I'm trying to earn my way to the Lord. Now, the third group are those who believe these words. You live your life by them. You may be incredibly familiar with these words. After all, I know for a fact in Iwana, verses 8 and 9, they have to memorize those verses. I think lots of our kids know these verses. And you may look at this and say, oh, that's not for me. Those were for the first two groups that Pastor Mark talked about. Today is going to be one of those sermons where I can just check out. I know this. Well, church, Paul didn't write this little section to non-believers. He wrote it to the church. These words are for us. They're supposed to do something in us. So church, this morning, I invite you to wrestle with What is God saying to me through this message, through these words that maybe I have heard many times before? Because here's the truth. Even though we believe that second religion, grace, we are tempted to always slide back and live under the banner of that first religion. We forget that we are saved and were saved by grace. We start to think that I need to do particular things or not do other things in order for God to love me. One of the men at AM Theologians this week said, if I don't, God won't. If I don't, God won't. I love that so much, I stole it. All credit to Kyle Blankers. So, if I don't, God won't. But church, this passage forces us out of that this morning. We are saved by grace. Let's cling to it. All right, let's get into our passage here, but let me give you our first point right off the bat. It's this. The starting point for all people at all times in all places is spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness. All people, all times, all places. Spiritual deadness. Paul talks about this very clearly in verses 1 to 3. Let's dive back into our text. I hope you got this uh, spiritual deadness. Verse 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Let me pause right there for a moment, just talk about sin and death. What is sin? Sin is deliberate, false steps. It is me, it's trespass, basically me going somewhere I should not go. And it's not, oops, I accidentally did this. It's, no, I know I'm not supposed to go there, but I'm going to go there anyways. I want to do the thing God has said no, or I refuse to do the good thing that God has said yes to. In essence, it is rebellion against a perfect and holy God, a rightful king. It is me saying, I want to be the lawmaker. It's all up to me. That is what sin is, and it results in death. Both physical and spiritual death. But Paul primarily here is talking about spiritual death because he also talks about us continuing to live according to the ways of the world. We walk. Now, to be spiritually dead means to be disconnected from the Lord. He is the source of life. And so for us, when we are disconnected from Him because of our rebellion, when we turn our back on Him, we no longer have life. We no longer are able to do what we were created for. We become like spiritual zombies just kind of wandering around looking for brains to eat that's what we are we just are mindless people following three things paul talks about three ways or three particular voices that we listen to as we walk there's three things three verbs that he gives He has following the world, following uh, following Satan, and then carrying out desires, basically living according to our flesh. Now, I'm going to give you one illustration for all three of these things. I mean, they, they all fit under the same umbrella of one illustration. Imagine yourself in an army, okay? And there's different components of an army. There's the culture that you live in within the army. That's what basically Paul is referring to as the world. It's what we live in. It's the systems that are around you. Ask anybody who's been in the army or any branch of the military and there are particular ways that they have been influenced and the way they live their life because of the way they were trained, because of what happened when they were in the military. That is the world. The world is the systems around us. A good definition for it is the organized system around us that hates God. It includes culture, Politics, and basically anything mankind creates, that's the world. And that's the default that we find ourselves. Think of that, again, as the rules of the army that we're in. They are not neutral rules. They are opposed to the Lord. The second one is Satan. So we follow the course of the world, and we also follow the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. It becomes more clear later on in the book. It's the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedient. Every army has a general, has the guy at the top, the person in charge, and that is Satan. He is the enemy of God. He is quite powerful. He's overseeing the army, giving it orders, and Paul says we are willing followers, taking what he said and running with it. And then the last one. We all lived amongst the people following Satan, and we are carrying out the passion or the desires of the body and the mind. That is, the passions of our flesh. You can think of our flesh, and in this, the flesh. Paul's not talking about our physical bodies. He's talking about our sinful nature. Some uh, translations will actually translate this sinful nature. He's obviously not talking about just our bodies, because he references the body and the mind. But he's talking about that part of us, that moral part of us that is fallen and that opposes God and says, I don't want what God wants. That's our flesh. That's what the scripture speaks of as our flesh. It's our old self, who we were before Christ. So if we have an army with a culture that makes rules, we have a general overseeing us, our flesh is like our immediate commanding officer or maybe like a drill sergeant that's yelling in our ears and we kind of just do whatever they say. That is what our flesh is. It's that immediate voice that's right here with us screaming in our ears and what do we do? We're just living it. We're carrying out the desires of the body. This is the army that we are in. We are all just following evil. Even the good things that we seem to do are tainted by evil because there's parts within us that aren't doing it for entirely noble purposes. We are... Through the the core, evil, dead, walking away from the Lord. And church, let me be honest with us. I'm going to move out from behind here. So I I just want to be honest and vulnerable with you this morning. All of us find ourselves in this boat. You may be sitting there and thinking, well, that's not me. There's someone far worse than me over there. I haven't killed anybody church we all once lived we're all children of wrath like the rest of mankind you cannot escape from this if we are honest we know that that is true you me and every single last person in the world this is who we are And the result is being a child of wrath. Now, this doesn't mean that we are wrathful or angry ourselves. That's not what he's talking about. It's saying that we are under God's wrath. By nature, because of the choices we've made, but also our own heritage in our spiritual father, Adam, we are deserving of God's wrath. We have not chosen him. We've chosen ourselves. We've chosen the enemy. We've all gone our own way. We deserve God's good justice. And it is loving for God to give His justice to the world. It's perfect. God's wrath and His love are not separated. Wrath is the right response when you love someone. When you you see evil, wrath is good. Anger is good. God is not part wrathful and part loving. He is fully just and loving. So it is his right response to sin. That's a bleak picture. Man and woman, this this is this is a difficult place to be. But God. But God did something about it. Amen. That's not where the passage stops. We don't have verse 3 and us being dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul goes on to verse 4. But God. But God. Well, nope. Let me find but God. Here it is. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, turns the worst tragedy you could imagine into a comedy. And not comedy in the ha-ha sense, comedy in the good ending sense. But God, He does something not out of, eh, I think I'll do this, but because He is full of love, because He is rich in mercy. God didn't look at what we were going to do, any choice that we're going to make, and think, hmm, I like what I see there. Think I'll reward this guy or this woman. I like it. No. Even when, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, but God, even when we were dead, God did something. Something. He took the initiative. He acted. Because of his mercy and love, God saves. God saves. Point one was bleak. We are all spiritually dead. But God, because of his mercy and love, he saves. He rescues. I want to give you a picture of what this is like. You know, I said we're all kind of in that army just fighting against God, willingly, without excuse. Imagine this, the king has captured these traitors who are rebelling against the king. He's presiding over their execution. What are those traitors doing? They're not begging for their lives. They're continuing to yell out and curse the king as they stand at the gallows about to be executed. And then what does the king do? He has mercy and compassion on them. He says, I know you don't love me. But I'm going to pardon some of you to show my compassion, to show my mercy. And I love you, anyways. And he reaches out. He taps these prisoners, these traitors, on the head. You are pardoned. You are forgiven. That's what he's done. Paul gives us three specific verses, or three verbs, excuse me, to talk about how he has saved us. The first one is this, he's made us alive together with Christ. These are all kind of incorporating similar ideas, They they aren't exactly the same thing, but they are together, they go together. We've been made alive in Christ, that is, we're no longer dead, so the problem of us being dead, of us being those spiritual zombies... God fixes it. He makes us alive with Christ. And Paul gets really excited and he gives this little aside. By grace you've been saved. He can't, he can't contain himself. He's going to revisit this again in verse 8. So I'm going to put, put pause. I'm not going to talk about that just yet. But he's, he's excited because we've been made alive. We're alive. But not only that, we've been raised up with him. Raised up with him. We've been raised to life spiritually. Jesus was raised to life physically and with him and in him we were raised to life spiritually. So again, similar to the idea of being made alive but not just raised up to life. We are raised up to life above in the heavenlies because he goes on to say we have been seated with him. He seated us with Christ. Now we look at this and we're like, I really don't know what that means. What does it mean to be seated with Christ? Well, it means that I have a new home. I am with the Lord somehow right now in heaven. This is not He will seat us with Him. He will raise us up. He will make us alive. No, this has happened. We are somehow in heaven with Jesus right now seated with Him. And because we are seated with Him, it means we have new concerns new cares. We don't have to follow the course of the world. We don't have to follow that enemy general. We don't have to listen to our flesh yelling at us in the ear. Instead, we have new concerns. In Colossians, a very similar book to Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, he says, look, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above because that's where we are. Why are we so concerned with the things of this world about what other people think And what's happening in our job? How things are going here? The successes and failures? We've been seated with Christ. We are with Him. May we live like it. We are with God. He has undone the calamity. He's fixed the problem. So you may be sitting here and you're wondering, what does this have to do with my life? What do I do with this? I want to give you some hope. Christian, you may be struggling, you may be stuck in sin, and you're like, I don't know how to get free. I'm stuck in pornography, I'm stuck in gambling, I'm stuck in people-pleasing, whatever it is. Maybe you've wasted your life savings gambling. And our culture around us tries to get us to do that. With all the sports betting that you can do now, legally, it has brought disaster on people. We'll talk more about that later in the book of Ephesians. But you may be looking at your life and it may be in shambles. Christian you may have wasted so much of your life but God has seated you in the heavenlies and made you alive. Christian maybe you had cheated on your spouse but God has seated you in the heavenlies and made you alive with Christ. Christian you may have stolen money whether it was cheating on your taxes, not doing work that you ought to when you're at work and getting paid, or maybe you just straight up took money from somebody. But God has made you alive with Him. Maybe something smaller. Christian, maybe you've struggled to get into your, your Bible and read consistently and just spend quality time with the Lord and with people in the church. And you feel distraught over that and you feel you beat yourself up all the time. God has has made you alive in Christ. There is hope. Maybe you've been full of pride, judgmentalism, hatred. God has made you alive. You may run away from relationships with those around you because you're too afraid to be close or you don't want the burdens that that brings. And you look at your life and you're like, I wish it was different. Again, Christian... But God. I feel like any sort of terrible thing we can think about in our lives, verse 4 continually brings us back to what God has done. But God. But God. When we forget this, we start living under that if I don't, God won't mentality. But God. He's done something. And why did he make us alive and raise us and seed us with Christ? Well, verse 7, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? He's saying God has done this so that for all eternity us and the angelic realm will sing his praises and declare just how great he is because of what he has done. He will be glorified. He will be known to be awesome and great. That's why he has done this. Not because we're awesome, but because he wants us to know how gracious and mighty he is. Our salvation is not about us. And we need verses 1 to 3 where we look at the death that we have in order for the life that we have in Christ to actually be as glorious as it is. But God. Let's talk about grace. God's salvation comes by grace. This work of God, this but God, God, the two most powerful words in all of Scripture, but God, it comes not because of what we've done, but because of grace, unmerited favor. Good things that we don't deserve, given to you and to me. Mercy is not giving somebody something bad that they deserve, like not punishing them. Grace, is giving somebody something good that they don't deserve. And God is rich in mercy and rich in grace. Verse 8, famous Awana verses, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. By grace we've been saved. It's one thing for someone to give another person a piece of candy, I love how Rob Maindring gives the kids, you know, little fruit snacks every time they walk in. It is, it, it is awesome. My kids love it. And that is a gracious act of Rob. And yeah, it, it makes my day every time I see it. That's one thing. It is another thing entirely for that king who pardons those rebel, rebellious traitors on the gallows. He pardons them and then brings them into his family, inviting them to dine at his table and calls them sons and daughters. That's grace. And that's what our God has done for us. That measure of grace. We were rebellious, not looking for favors, not looking to be pardoned. And he pardoned us anyways and did far more than just say, well, now you just can remain soldiers in my army. No, he said, I'll call you sons and daughters of the King." That is our God. For by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. The you have been saved is passive. You know, you have active verbs and passive verbs. Active verbs are where you are the one doing something. Passive verbs, where something is being done to you. This is a passive verb. You were saved. Not you got yourself saved or you saved yourself. No, you were saved by God's grace. Think about Lazarus in the tomb. How much did Lazarus have to do with Jesus calling him out of that tomb? Lazarus didn't like say, Jesus, hey, can you, can you come here and ask me to come back to life? He wasn't there rotten in the tomb and, and saying, oh, Jesus is here. I'm going to get up now. I don't know. What happened? Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came to life. That is what happens with us. We are not the ones who save ourselves. We are saved by the good judge from his wrath because he is rich in mercy. Now, where do we enter into the picture? Well, through faith. You have been saved through faith faith by grace through faith faith is belief or trust trusting that god will rescue us that he has rescued us it's saying i believe that this is true lord save me i want to give you two things it's not what this faith is not because our culture loves to talk about faith one is just generic trusting in something oh you just gotta have faith it doesn't matter what you have faith in just have faith just believe that's one type of faith Another type of faith that it's not is just knowing about something. Oh, I know about Jesus. I was raised in the church. But do you trust Jesus or do you trust yourself? Do we trust him? We don't just know about Jesus. We trust in the person and work of Jesus. Author J.V. Fesco says this, historical faith, and that's not saving faith, understands the claims of Scripture. Okay, so you know about what Scripture says. Temporary faith seems for a time to trust Him, but saving faith is a firm conviction and trust in the person and work of Christ. While demons understand and comprehend the facts about God and Jesus Christ, this faith causes them to tremble. For the Christian, faith leads to joy and confidence in the goodness and grace of God, which bestows salvation through Jesus Christ, apart from works, even apart from the fruit that flows from faith. That's the type of faith that Paul is talking about here. It is looking at Jesus and saying, I believe in your grace. Please save me by your grace. I can't earn your favor. It's calling out to God and trusting that he has saved us. That is the faith that that Paul is talking about here. Faith does not save us. Okay, let me be very clear. You are not saved by faith. You are saved through faith. Those are very important distinctions. The, the best image, I've shared this before, but the best image, think about a computer. Faith is kind of like the electrical cord from the computer to the wall. It's not the electricity, and it's not the computer. It is the means by which the electricity gets to the computer. That is our faith. That is the means that God has ordained by which, or through which, I should say, we would be saved. It's even hard to continue getting those words right. We are saved By grace, through faith. It's a gift. It's a gift. Paul says that in the rest of verse 8. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What's Paul talking about? Is he talking about our faith? Is he talking about the grace? Is he talking about salvation? Yes, all three. It's the gift of God is all three of those things. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you have not trusted in the person and work of Jesus, if you don't have this type of faith I'm talking about, I invite you to have this type of faith. Call out to the Lord. We're told in the scriptures that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. If you call on the Lord in faith and say, Jesus, I believe, He will save you. He will give you His Holy Spirit. You will become a different man or woman. And you may have been in the church your your whole life and never cried out for the Lord to save you. You're still trying to do it yourself. I invite you believe today but most of us here today we're christians we believe in this grace so again what do we do with this passage it's like pastor mark you've been talking a lot about this well one i want to stoke a fire in our hearts about the beauty of god's grace I want us to see it, and we need to be reminded of what we've been saved from. Because again, Paul is talking to Christians here. He's talking to Christians, not non-Christians. We struggle to live in grace. A few weeks ago, I shared the illustration of the spiritual treadmill. We are running as hard as we can to get God to like us. Meanwhile, God's like, you're already at your destination. Stop running. You have my grace. Jesus died for us. We don't need to do anything else. We have His grace. There's two sides you can fall onto. I need to do all these good things or i got to abstain from this bad thing. Those are are just the things that happen in our hearts. But here's the truth. You hadn't done any good things when God chose to love you. You had only bad things on your resume. But God... He's rich in mercy. So rest in grace. Now, Christian, you may be hearing this and say, doesn't this lead to the temptation? If I'm resting in grace and just truly trusting that God loves me no matter what, that there are no strings attached, if I truly believe that, doesn't that just open the door for me to do whatever? For me to gratify the desires of my flesh? For me to follow the course of this world? And to follow the prince of the power of the air? That seems to open the door. That's not what Paul says. We're going to see, in verse 10, we're going to see that we were saved for good works. We are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. God has a purpose and a plan for us. He has good works for us to walk in. We were saved for good works. In verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created for good works, saved for good works. This word workmanship is ultimately the word kind of masterpiece. Masterpiece. We're not just, you know, I'm a woodworker. There's some things I, I make and create that are just kind of ugly and they're shop furniture and it's whatever And then there's masterpieces. I'm not a master worker, so I don't know if I have any masterpieces. But there's pieces I'm proud of. Things that I'm like, yeah, I did a good job on that. God, as the master artisan, has taken dead people who were rebels, invited them to be in his family, made them alive, and has made them his masterpiece. Masterpiece. And as his masterpiece, we walk in good works. We even have our banner up today from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. They're slowly getting back up. Here it is right here. We were created for good works. Good works are the result of God's saving work in our life, our life. So good works don't produce or good works do not produce salvation. Salvation produces good works. If I look at the grace of God and my response is, well, now I can do whatever I want, then I haven't really gotten the grace of God because how could I reject a king who saved me from death itself? I will walk in his grace. God delights in you as you do your good works, but the source of his affection for you and the base foundation of that delight is is coming out of who he is and not what you have done. With my chid, my children, my kids, I don't love them because of what they've done. I love them because they're my children. And the same is true of our Lord. The temptation for us is to say if I don't, God won't. But I have this phrase for you to end today, kind of the opposite of that, which is God has done, so I do. God has done. He has made us alive. He's raised us. He's seated us with Christ. He has done so I do. May we dwell on that and delight in His grace. Let me pray. Father, we praise You for Your abundant goodness and grace in our life. Thank You for showing us mercy even when we weren't looking for it. For even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, You made us alive. Lord, I pray that those here today who have not believed and do not believe, may they believe. Father, may your spirit move in them. Please have mercy on them in the way that you've had mercy on us who do believe. Father, we thank you for your grace. Help us to live in light of your grace. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.